I'll have a double whiskey, please. Just to ward off the chill of the evening. A double whiskey for Mr. Holmes. A toast. The greatest detective in all the world. Thank you, gentlemen. I am touched. I can vouch for that. You, sir, remind me of someone I once encountered during the curious affair of the Manchurian Mambo. Holmes, could I have a word? Yes. I believe that was the Manchurian Mamba, Holmes. Mamba, Mambo, what's the difference? Oh, very little, other than one is a deadly poisonous snake and the other is a rather festive Caribbean dance. It was a night just like any other, when someone knocked at the door. I opened it and there were these Manchurians doing this rather festive Caribbean dance. Manchurian Mambo. Steady, Watson. Just get through it one more time, then you're rid of the fellow. What a pleasant thought. The following film podcast frequently contains adult content, including foul language and descriptions of adult situations. Spoilers for the films discussed occur often. Listener discretion is advised. Now take it away, Dr. Rausch. <laughs> They must be destroyed on sight! We're back, and it's They Must Be Destroyed on Site, episode 181. And I'm your host, Lee, blunt excrement Russell, joined by my co-host, Daniel, the faint, sweet odor of blackmail. Harper, how are you doing, sir? I am not blackmailing anyone, nor am I being blackmailed. I guess I don't have that odor around me currently, although I am planning on doing some blackmail soon. So I'll, I'll have to, I'll let you know exactly <laughs> what that smells like. I suspect it's going to smell like a, a, a combination of rotten fish and ozone. That's my guess. And uh, we are once again joined for this uh, nice little series on Sherlock Holmes films we're doing by Jack Artie Morty Graham. How are you doing, sir? Uh, Fine, thanks. I was just wondering what Daniel has on me. (laughs) (laughs) What don't I have on you, Jack? That's really the, the question. Yeah. So we've got two more uh, Sherlock Holmes adaptations here to uh, to get through in this episode, and then we're going to finish off our series with the uh, two Robert Downey Jr. ones, the Guy Ritchie films, uh, next episode. But before we get into what we're doing tonight, I just want to mention briefly that I am on the latest episode of Get Soft with Dr. Snuggles, which is a softcore podcast, covers silly softcore films and serious softcore films and everything in between. And we did a silly one called Embrace the Darkness 3. That's what it was, yeah. It, mm. It's it's a sexy vampire movie, although none of the vampires in it are remotely sexy, but you know, that's, that's fine. And I'll put a link to that in the uh, show notes for anyone who's interested in checking it out. You should check it out. It's an excellent podcast. We do have a few comments here to get through. First off, we've got a couple of YouTube comments, and we're back to the usual stuff, not <laughs> Not All the, right, not the good ones. I was I was afraid Jack wouldn't get this experience uh, properly. So. <laughs> well, we do have one good one, but uh, we'll we'll save that for last. So Mark Galetti on our "Bring Me the Head of Alfredo Garcia" episode says, "Why can't I find the movie?" You didn't <laughs> you didn't Google properly. That's all you had to do. But. Mm. Because you uh, clicked on something called TMBDOS episode something or other about bring me that that's why that's why on our slither episode someone called pretty mary said 
find please this movie completely and send please question mark. <laughs> <laughs> I that one should be really easy to find, honestly. Like I'm I'm yeah, okay, it's fine. It's That's fine. one of your more coherent YouTube comments. <laughs> Sadly, it is. Uh, it was, it, it, I mean, to be fair here, that's probably someone who doesn't have English as a first language typing uh, that in, right? So, um, well, that's, that seems to be most people on the internet. So, I guess, yeah, yeah, uh, kind of yeah. almost by definition, right? Like that's not even like, well, yeah. you know, default YouTube <laughs> Absolutely, user. Yeah. Oh, uh, and now on to a good one. Uh, Shadow Man four seven one zero is backing in with a comment on our latest episode and said, "It's been years since I saw Hound of the Baskervilles, but I distinctly remember being disappointed when I found out that Christopher Lee was playing a supporting role. Peter Cushing, on the other hand, is excellent as Holmes. I forgot about some of the weirder plot points that are in this film. I'll have to find this and rewatch. Some interesting points about Moriarty here. I never thought about how incongruous it is to have a mathematics professor as a crime boss. But yeah, it doesn't make much sense, does it? I agree, by the way, about Jared Harris. He's an excellent Moriarty, maybe the best one I've seen, and I think nails the character as envisioned by Doyle. So there you go. That's good. I don't know if he nails a character as envisaged by Doyle, but I, I really like him. Whenever I think of a character as envisioned by Doyle, I immediately go to that to the uh, the picture from the from the original uh, text. He looks like a reptile with a large forehead and and all that. Yeah, yeah. But he just looks like the traditional depiction of Holmes, but old. True. Yeah, yeah. Moving on, Jeff Williams with his spooky recommendation of the week, not spooky. And this one is, <laughs> and this one is Habit from 1995. Uh, Larry Fessenden wrote, directed, and stars in this intelligent cinema verite style horror film about a likable, underachieving New York intellectual who, while going through some personal turmoil, meets up with a mysterious young woman at a Halloween party and slowly begins to suspect she's a vampire. Is he correct in his suspicion, or is his own addictions and uh, physiological demons overtaking him? And I've heard about this one. I don't think I've seen this one. So uh, I've never heard of that. So Man. Yeah, it's funny, funny for a film from 1995, you think I would have, like, I would go, oh, right, I remember seeing that on, like, you know, a cable or something back in the day, but no. Oh. I, I don't think this one got around much. Uh, I think it was... I think it's an independent film, so I don't even I don't even know if it got picked up by any big distributor or anything like that. But yeah, I'll bet it's on Rare West, which is also where you can find almost all the films we cover on this podcast. Oh, there you go. YouTube commenters who keep giving us bullshit. Anyway, that's what I should. That's what I should do for now on. Is like whenever they ask a question (laughs) like that, just link Rare West. Have fun. (laughs) Right. Yeah. All right, uh, so we're going to take a quick break, and we're going to come back, and we're going to be talking about another Basil Rathbone uh, Sherlock Holmes adaptation, and it's going to be The Woman in Green. Broadcasting from the Cursed Earth, the Psycho-Semanticast. Let us face, without panic, the reality of our time. The fact that atom bombs may someday be dropped on our cities. And let us prepare for survival by understanding the weapon that threatens us. To have a, uh, an ignorant, uh, thin-skinned megalomaniac uh, who sends off uh, you know, Twitters at 3 a.m. if somebody angered him. The neo-Nazis turning up in Washington, D.C. to have a rally saying, Heil Trump. We talk about politics. I knew I couldn't trust you corporate greaseballs. We talk about movies. You can't come down here and arrest people just because of what they look like. Are you crazy? But that's police harassment. We talk about political movies. We're in trouble. 
The whole world's in trouble. They're all around us and we never knew them. You can only see them with these special glasses. The Psycho Semanticast. Woman in Green from 1945. Like the white ribbon of road at night when you're driving. You'll find them soon now. The guilty ones. When you're rested. Gentle waters closing over you. Steady. Deep. Strong. Drawing you down. Directed by Roy William Neal, written by Bertram Milhauser and Arthur Conan Doyle, uh, Basil Rathbone and Nasir Bruce as Holmes and Watson, uh, Hilary Brooke as uh, Lydia Marlowe, Henry Daniel as Professor Moriarty, Paul Canova as Sir George Finwick, Matthew Bolton as Inspector Gregson, Eve Amber as Maud Finwick, uh, Frederick Warlock as Dr. Onslow, Tom Bryson as Corporal Williams, Sally Shepard as Crandon, Marlowe's maid, and Mary Gordon as Miss Hudson. And the synopsis for this one is, a serial killer appears to be on the loose in London, and Sherlock Holmes assists Inspector Gregson of Scotland Yard in the investigation. Holmes is brought into the case when Maud Fenwick asks him to investigate her father, Sir George Fenwick, who has been acting very oddly of late. Holmes has seen him in a hotel bar a few nights before with a very attractive and mysterious woman. He traces her to a club for hypnotists and eventually to his arch enemy, Professor Moriarty. Uh, and that's from Gary KMCD. Yet again, yeah, I guess that kind of scratches the surface of what's going on, but there's definitely a lot more going on in this one. We'll throw it over to uh, Jack for his general thoughts on this. Yeah, that does only really scratch the surface, doesn't it? Like uh, the Spider Woman, 
There's mm. a, a lot of plot in this one. And uh, yeah, some of it's really weird. Uh, <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, I, I, I basically like all of these. Um, so yeah, uh, I like this. Surprise, surprise. <laughs> it's one of the odder entries, I would say. This sort of We're doing this because the idea of Moriarty as a serial killer came up in one of our previous episodes. And this is about as close as as uh, these these films ever come to doing that because what's happening in this as i outlined in an, in the other episode is that moriarty's got this scheme going where he's he's it seems like it's him doing it as well because we don't actually we don't actually find out who's actually murdering the young women do we i um, feel like there was a lot cut out of this <laughs> it does feel like there was a, a couple of scenes cut there wasn't it but is it actually i don't know it seems like it's moriarty actually murdering women off the streets of london sort of jack the ripper style i suspected it was the doctor character that he has with him that crazy doctor because he's got that doll in one scene and that's mm. why i say it feels like there was maybe bits that were like left on the floor for this yeah. like there was maybe a whole subplot with that doctor's sort of stalking around the shadows, knifing women, you know? Like, Yeah, it does feel like that, doesn't it? Although it's hard to imagine that character doing that. Uh, I think he's, mm. he's he's probably cutting the fingers off because they, they make a big deal about how the fingers are cut off cleanly, so it must have been a surgeon, you know, because only a surgeon could cut a, a finger off cleanly, of course. But yeah, Moriarty's plan is murder young women off the streets, Jack the Ripper style, cut their fingers off, plant the fingers in the pockets of rich men who they've previously gotten their confederate Lydia Marlowe. He's, he's got his confederate Lydia Marlowe, who's this incredibly attractive hypnotist woman, to hypnotize. Uh, so they, I'm losing the thread even as I'm recounting it. Mm-hmm. So he, the, the guy she's victimized and hypnotized, he's lost his memory. So he wakes up with a finger in his coat. So he thinks he must be the murderer. So then Moriarty blackmails him. That's it. That's that, that's Moriarty's brilliant plan this it's, week. It's very overcomplicated, isn't it? Because it's it just like, bit, isn't it? Yeah. Why don't you just outright hypnotize them and get them to empty their bank for you? Well, yeah. <laughs> or hypnotize yeah. them, get information out of them about like some nefarious deed they've done in real life, and then just blackmail them for that. Yeah. <laughs> but I... Or or just do some. You know, it's like yeah, this this plan totally requires us to murder a bunch of women and cut their fingers off. Yeah. But this is not That's... for any reason of myself. This is an essential part of this plan, guys. <laughs> That's it. You do re- get... We are required to do this. You do I'm get the feeling you, that Moriarty's... You have very good reasons for this. You just don't That's... understand it. Because right. you're not the criminal mastermind. That's right. I'm. I, trust me on this. It's, yeah, it's completely... I'm not, you know, I don't want to do it because I enjoy it in any way. It's No. It's an inse- it's an essential part of the plan. Yeah, absolutely. It does seem a bit overcomplicated. I don't know. I'm not a criminal. Maybe this is how it works. The film hinges a lot on the idea that you can't make a hypnotized person do something that's fundamentally out of their character, which I suppose is why you can't get rich men to hand over all their money. I don't know. Um, I one of my favorite things in the film is the business with the uh, the guy that Moriarty sends to assassinate Holmes and. Holmes explains that that's the that's the devilish trick. You know, the guy is an army sniper, so it's not out of his character, which I thought I think that's really good. Uh, which, in some ways, it's kind of an improvement on the original material because that bit is mm. kind of a, an adaptation of stuff from the Empty House, which you know we we uh, talked about. There's in a little uh, there's a little bit of final problem in Empty House in this kind of, and then the rest is all original after that, pretty much. Yeah, 
Yeah. I, I think one of the, the funny ticks these films develop towards the, the end, and this is one of the later ones, is they start beginning with these long prologues that don't have Watson and Holmes in. Um, uh, and this is one of those. There's quite a lot of movie before Holmes turns up. There's a lot of business in the police commissioner's office with sort of, I think it's meant to be funny stuff about windows being opened and closed and guys with their arms folded. And or I think we're meant to find all this incredibly amusing. And I think everybody's just sitting there going, get the fuck on with it, guys. Um, uh, yeah, and then Holmes turns up, and you get it starts off quite somber, doesn't it? The the tone at the start is quite serious and somber, and there's lots of there's lots of stuff about guys getting upset about young women being murdered, you know, because they're they're just helpless little things who can't look after themselves. Yeah, uh, lo- lovely period sexism. Yeah, it's, it's how dare it's, they pick a pretty one? Jeez, why can't yeah, they? Exactly. Why can't they kill like? The, the unattractive ones, at least. That that seems yeah. to be, you know, sort of the attitude that some of these guys have. One of the useless, ugly ones. <laughs> Not there for any reason, you know. You also, um, also, just throw it in here, Horny Watson. That's oh, a sight yeah. to behold. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, again, that's a running theme in these movies. Watson just openly salivating over women a third his age, you know. <laughs> he's but, almost going a wooga. Yeah, his, that's right. Yeah, his bow tie sticking out and... <laughs> steam coming out of his ears and stuff yeah thankfully we don't pair age inappropriate men with young women in movies these days that's all over oh, yeah. Um, yeah yeah so it's a weird one i like a lot of stuff in it i like the somber atmosphere at the start i like that there's a, a more serious detective scotland yard detective because I, I love dennis Huey's lestrade but it's nice to have a break from him and have a slightly more serious copper in it you have the the lovely henry daniel wonderful hollywood sinister man henry daniel as moriarty although he is phoning it in a bit a bit but you know it's still henry daniel so that man yeah. can frown he's got a large mouth yeah yeah i love the surreal hypnotism scenes as well one of my favorite things in the movie is the peculiar way they shoot the reflection because the way she hypnotizes guys is by getting them to look at a bowl of water with flowers floating in it or something Mm -hmm. and they do some lovely business with showing us the reflection of her and the guy she's hypnotizing in the water of the bowl and it's shot really weirdly because if you look at it it's what they've done is they've shot her and the man because it happens a couple of times from above and then they've projected that onto the water of the bowl. So it creates this very weird, uh, surreal effect. Uh, I like that as well. So, yeah, it's a, you know, it's, um, it's, a, it's a funny, weird, dated, uneven piece. But there's some interesting things in it, and I like it a lot. Daniel? I think it improves on the uh, original Doyle, uh, or at least sort of the adaptations that we've seen of the, uh, of the original Doyle in a lot of ways. I found it yeah, more... Certainly with the, the stuff from The Empty House. Yeah, it's an improvement, yeah, yeah, yeah. I think. Adding this sort of like serial killer element, I mean, I, I, I it reminded me of uh, of the lodger. Um, mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. it's made around the same time. I think like a year later, <clears throat> at least that uh, that version of the lodger, the Laird Krieger one that we reviewed, it has it has some of the same kind of tonal issues as that does, and it, and it strikes me as again, they, they're they're basically doing Holmes as noir, and uh, you know, I'm kind of down for that. The hypnotism stuff, I mean, you know, the the and the and the sort of like. You know, well, we know this guy, uh, you know, prominent noses and prominent men, I think was, was you know, <laughs> an interesting bit. Just, <laughs> yes, Holmes, you and Julius Caesar, very similar characters. Uh, yeah. yeah. Um, there's a whole, there's a whole book in that probably, but uh, <laughs> you know, no, I like this. I think it's interesting. It didn't grab me the way that some of the other ones have. Um, but I thought it was enjoyable, kind of a mixed bag. I wish it had been a little bit more of that kind of like more serious a serial killer look from the beginning. I mean, I kind of like 
Gathis was going to be Moriarty pretty early on. I think because we had like discussed it, and I was like, "Oh, right, that's this one." Okay, I get it. And I, and I wish it had not quite gone in that direction. I wish it had kind of you had to kind of track down some some random serial killer or something. I wish it had been a little bit more, maybe like a seven kind of kind of thing. But yeah, I think it works pretty well. Um, I do really like the uh, scene between um, Moriarty and Holmes in Holmes's study at Two Twenty yeah. Baker Street. Um, I really love the the performance there. The you know I liked it. Moriarty isn't even pretending that he's mm. not the guy. He's just well, you can't prove that, so you know whatever. Um, I, I like that they're that are just kind of really open with each other. I like that Moriarty has the line uh, something to the effect of, uh, "So why don't you shoot me?" And Holmes is like, "I would have, but you've got Watson, and I know that." So you know it's like so there's no like <laughs> there's no like sense of like maybe I shouldn't just murder a man in my living room. It's like no, no, I would have, I, I totally would have. You were right to take precautions against that. Yes, I, that that is correct. I, I kind of you know I don't know how Holmes that feels, but uh, it does feel I did I do like this version of Holmes who just has that slightly more bloodthirsty attitude towards it, and uh, yeah, no, uh, hypnosis is kind of bullshit. I kind of hate using hypnosis in any story, but it's 1945 and it hadn't quite become the, the trope that it is. Um, I feel like it's it's kind of a get out of jail free card. Oh, they were hypnotized, um, so much that it's it's you know we're more used to seeing it in things like like the Naked Gun. You know, mm-hmm. where, where it's a it's it's a it's a comedy effect as opposed to to something that we're supposed to take remotely seriously. So, that, um, that, I think that comic situation uh, scenario of turning O.J. Simpson into a killer, yeah, it never would happen in real life. So, <laughs> anyway, yeah, it's enjoyable. It's got a lot of like tropey stuff from the '40s, um, and uh, your tolerance for this is going to be basically built on that. But I like it a lot. I like I always I always love the Rathbone Nigel Bruce uh, relationship. Um, they're they're so much fun together, and uh, yeah, enjoyed. Yeah, this one was a mixed bag for me. I think I like it more than I didn't like it. But going back to what Jack was saying about the opening, I, I found that a bit confusing and and draggy. It was like, why am I listening to this other guy who's not Watson narrate this opening? Like that <laughs> made no sense to me. Wait a second, this Gregson guy. He's actually kind of what Watson is from the stories because he's halfway competent and he's doing a good job. And it's like, oh, maybe you just should have wrote Watson like that to begin with. <laughs> um, <laughs> but going past that, getting the uh, narration stuff out of the way. Also in the opening, I think I have a problem with Holmes being so openly human towards people. I feel like he's too chummy with Gregson. At the beginning, it's like, hey, let's go get a drink. <laughs> it's like, we've got a serial killer on the loose. Let's go get a drink. Yeah, and then later pub, on, he's yeah. like, I can't possibly, I, I, I can't possibly stop. I haven't solved this crime yet. Literally, the first thing you did when you took the case was like, let's go get some whiskey soda. Like, you know. <laughs> <laughs> where do they go to? They go to this loud, fancy, like, cabaret entertainment club or whatever, as if he'd ever do that with anyone. Like, I don't <laughs> I don't, I don't care what yeah. adaptation you're doing. It's like, that's not a placeholder. Maybe maybe he's flirting with Gregson. Maybe that's what's going uh, on here. Maybe, maybe he's maybe he's like trying to is, like, yeah. get, him, get him a little drunk, you know, get him a little, and then, like, say, hey, you know. I'm a bit tired of just Watson all the time, you know, I fancy some... <laughs> Something a bit different. Their, their conversation is a bit loaded. There's some innuendo in there, oh. so maybe, yeah, that's it. Mm. <laughs> also, it's weird because also they show up to this place, and it's literally the place where the next murder is about to happen. Yeah, like, yeah. nice, nice yeah. coincidence well, that's, there. Yeah, that's that's the only reason for Holmes and Gregson to go and get a drink. That's they write that. Oh, let's go and get a drink, mm-hmm. so that Holmes and Gregson can go to the bar 
where they where Holmes and Gregson will then see the woman in green and Sir George across the way. And the thing is, there's no need for that whatsoever because the the you know the solution to the mystery, no, nothing in the in the plot, nothing in the story hinges on them having seen that. If you, if you need Holmes, because in these Holmes is basically just supernatural. So if you need Holmes to know something, Holmes can just look at a bit of fluff on the floor and know everything he needs to know. So you don't need Holmes to have seen the woman in advance. So they write this entire scene for plot reasons when there's no need for it at all. If you know, if you want to show us the chat up stuff between uh, Lydia, the woman in green, and and Sir George, you can just cut to that. Holmes and Gregson don't need to be there. <laughs> so there's some real sort of half-assed craft on on display there. The, the script the scriptwriters are thinking, oh yeah, that's clever. We'll have Holmes and Gregson go to the bar so that that leads us. In. And he says, no, you don't you don't need to do that. Don't, yeah. don't bother. It's it's a subtle. It's a very subtle thematic choice to show the connections no. between this life of crime and the, you know, it's, it's kind of a high and low society sort of, sort of uh, analysis here. It's a, it's actually quite clever. You're just not smart enough to get it, Jack. I, I, uh, I, I feel ho- bad ho- for you. Holmes knew from the beginning that that's where criminal <laughs> had drinks. <laughs> and he, he, he intuited from the, from the ether around him that hypnosis was going to be somehow involved with this. He case didn't have to go to the hypnosis know. club. He just did that to fuck with Watson. Like he did. Yeah. I want to get him hypnotized. <laughs> I just want to see him like, take his shoe off and clack, quack like a doctor some shit. You know, like whatever they come up with, I'm fine with anything. But yeah, I do if, like that scene. Yeah, no. Honestly, like Jack was saying, it seems like there's about a million things going on in this, which makes me feel like this is one of the ones I kind of wish was stretched out to like almost 90 minutes just because there's other stuff going on. Like it it feels like with two interesting villains like Moriarty and uh, what Lydia or whatever her name is, is it Lydia Marlowe? Lydia Marlowe. Yeah, a name uh, that couldn't clearly be noir inspired. No, you know. but it, it feels like each one of them deserve their own movie. Like it, it, it feels like they should be pitted against uh, Holmes in separate films, and so, and so uh, I feel like they're kind of fighting for uh, screen time between the two. And yeah. if maybe if they had a bit more time, they could stretch that out. They could bring that creepy doctor in and actually explain what the fuck he's actually doing instead of like giggling about the chance he gets to stab Holmes with a knife to see if he'll flinch or not after under hypnosis or whatever. Also, maybe the reason they cut some of this stuff out and I'm, I'm, I'm honestly, I'm kind of convinced that some of this stuff probably was in the script and they just, they cut it out before they started filming is you don't see any blood and mm. clearly a guy gets a needle stuck through his hand <laughs> to demonstrate that he's under hypno- hypnosis and they pull the needle out, no blood, no blood on his hand, no entry wound, no sign of anything. Holmes is apparently like what stabbed in the back of the neck or something like that by the crazy doctor to to prove that he's hypnotized. No blood turns right around. Neck looks fine. So that kind of stuff bugged me a little bit. Uh, and it feels like, yeah, the sensors kind of crack down on this quite a bit. Right. And that's also why you don't get a, like a lot of scenes of women being stalked and murdered too. It is a bit sanitized, isn't it? Which is weird because th- this is one of the ones this happens in quite a few of these uh, Rathbone ones. There is, there is some weird undercurrents to it. There's some weird things happening that they don't really need to be there. Like the business with that funny little doctor and his, and his creepy dolls and stuff, you know, it's, and the whole, the whole business of like chopping the fingers off, it's, it's weirder and nastier than it needs to be for what it is, which is like, you know, boy's own B movie stuff, you know, and yet 
yeah, you do feel like there's a there's an even more disturbing version of this, maybe only with like two or three extra scenes that got left on the cutting room floor somewhere. Yeah, I think the combination of serial pulp stuff and film noir elements in here, they work really well. Like the print I watched off YouTube was obviously like the Blu-ray version or whatever, like super cleaned up, look great, look pretty much on par, although maybe a bit lower rent than like the Lodger, the other Laird Krieger film uh, that we did. Um, Hangover Square. Hangover Square, yeah, thanks. Kind of had that same look. Uh, there's like a Dutch tilt. Looking <laughs> Sorry, at just just had this moment of like Hangover Square, which was based on a novel, which was set then contemporaneously in the 1940s. Mm-hmm. But the film was set in 1880 or whatever. Versus this, just the other way around. Anyway, sorry. Go ahead. I yeah, was, but that, I'm, that just occurred to me. I mean, there's there's great shots in this. Like there's there's that the overhead shots, uh, especially when Holmes is out in the balcony, that really do kind of like I was feeling a little nervous watching that. Like, oh shit, he could fall off of there. You know, like it mm-hmm. was actually effectively done. There's a Dutch tilt in the uh, hypnotist scene where where we're looking at Holmes and and by a skewed angle, which I, I thought looked really good. And then, like what Jack was saying, with the the reflection in the little dish of water or whatever, with the flowers and stuff, a lot of thought behind just the visuals in this one, which I, I think just makes it heads and tails above for me all the other ones of these this series we've seen so far. So, um, yeah, overall, I like this a lot, even with my minor quibbles with it. Uh, hmm. you know, but... I think it's one that repays you know, a couple of viewings. Like there's, there is some stuff going on under the surface, some queasy notes. And as you say, some, some nicely shot stuff, like uh, uh, particularly, I would say the business with the reflections in the bowl during the hypnotism sequence. That's all, that's a bit sort of proto Hitchcock surrealism. You know, it's, it's mm-hmm. a little bit, it's foreshadowing the kind of surrealism that will creep into movies in uh, movies like Spellbound and, and Vertigo and so yeah. on. I do agree with you. Like it's, a, it's almost a shame that we have the two villains crammed in together. Cause I think Lydia Marlowe, the woman in green, she could, she could carry a film by herself, you know, as the villain. And yet I really like this version of Moriarty. I think this is the best version of Moriarty in the Basil Rathbone movies. Cause there's this three and this is the best, although I, I, you know, Henry Daniel is phoning it in a bit, but I still think he's the best one. And kind of Henry Daniel's whole thing is understatement. He's always very suave and calm, whatever he's doing. So, um, yeah, I, and I, I do like the, uh, the meeting scene where him and Holmes have their discussion in Baker Street, which are, some of the lines from that are from the original text. And there's a, there's a real feeling of sort of, old frenemies you know yeah. speaking in a language that they understand but anybody else listening in wouldn't quite get all the hints and and notes of it you know so yeah i, I think this is one you need to watch a couple of times to get everything out of it as uneven so, uh, as it is there's, there's a lot here yeah I, uh, watson definitely wouldn't get that conversation he's the no. stupidest i've ever seen him in any of these movies like yeah, he's this, just totally stupid in this movie this he's is rude as fuck like he's this a jerk is, one of the stupidest versions of Nigel Bruce's Watson, as I say, well, he does. There's no blood. But... There's no blood in his brain. That's the problem oh, in this yeah. film. He all... literally the only thing he does is he sees the pretty girl Eve Amber as Maud Fenwick. He sees the girl Maud, and he's just completely uh, unable to to think for himself any longer. Oh, when, so, when they uh, even yeah. even when they uh, either they're talking about her or they're talking about Marlowe, and he's like, "Huh, blonde, you say? Green eyes? Do you have her number?" And it's like, <laughs> and just, every time he gets shown up, he just starts protesting under his breath like that uncle you really hate in your family who's, who's yeah. a loud mouth and a busy body. And he gets put in his place as like, whoa, oh, I never, I'd be on the curtain, wasn't he? <laughs> <And so, laughs> 
But he thinks Dr. Watson's going to get me chewed. That's what's yeah. going the thing is that the, the the uncle who does that, you know, he does it in response to his wife telling him off, and they really are they're incredibly old married couple in this one, Holmes and Watson. They really like extra super Very duper much. old married couple. And uh, I, I did find it funny, like how uh, Lydia Marlowe at the end, she seems pretty okay with getting caught and taken away. Like you're going away for murder. Like you're an accessory to murder. You're, you're, you're probably not getting out of jail. You're, you're probably done. There's a sort of note of distaste in her performance as well. Obviously she's not seriously bothered by the morality of anything they're doing, but she's not a sadist, is she? And Moriarty's really enjoying drawing out the process of killing Holmes as he thinks. And she yeah. sort of says to him, do you, do you have to draw this out? So there's a note of, you know, she doesn't quite share Moriarty's sadism. She's just yeah. immoral. Yeah. yeah. She finds it a bit vulgar. She just wants to uh, get it done, get on with it, which is interesting, liked, the contrast there. Yeah. And I liked Moriarty's death, too. He's like, well, no, no noose is going to hang me. So he jumps across the building and grabs onto a loose pipe and then just plummets to his death. And then, like, a second later, a second later, Holmes is like, well, the women of London can uh, walk the streets <laughs> safely tonight, and it's like it never happens. Like there, there's not a mess like five stories down or whatever right now. Like you, <laughs> the, none yeah. of that. Yeah, those, those are for your inferiors to have to clean up. Ultimately. That's yeah. right. Yeah, yeah. It's for the for the plebs <laughs> to come Lestrade, along. And clean up the... has to do something in this story. You know, they're just going to call <laughs> it up and be like, if you're looking, for, if you're looking for Moriarty, he's at such and such location, and bring him up. The only thing that disappointed me here is that apparently this is the last appearance of Moriarty in the in the series. I guess this is like the yeah. third and last. I think, yeah. and uh, I, it just felt like the way they were positioning this, it was just oh Moriarty's going to show up again uh, because he's played by a different guy every time. So it almost feels like oh this is just the guy Moriarty hypnotized to run this scheme, right? And then the real Moriarty's is still somewhere in, in the shadows lurking, and he's going to show up next episode or whatever. Well, but. as as I always say, you know, Mori, Moriarty's just regenerated since the last film. And it kind of works the same way, because you could bring Moriarty back after this. It doesn't matter. You know, 15 people see him plummet to the pavement and turn into pizza. It doesn't matter. Just bring him back, played by a different actor for films down the line, and say, oh, so you did survive Okay, fine. Moriarty's back. I mean, why well, not? I, I mean, it worked for fucking Blofeld in the Bond films, so yeah, yeah, yeah. You say, you say, oh, that wasn't the real Moriarty. He was actually hypnotized. And I'm like, didn't the Sherlock series do that? I feel like the Sherlock series would have would have tried that. Um, no, they, they're they're that's, they're way that's actually that's actually too that actually makes too much sense for the Sherlock series. That's a little well, bit too straightforward and reasonable. <laughs> yeah. Well, the, the Sherlock series, I mean, I've never seen any of it, but going by who wrote it, you know, they would do, oh, um, this Moriarty guy, it's not really Moriarty, it's a guy hypnotized. Oh, no, it's not actually, it is a real Moriarty. Actually, no, it's his identical twin. Actually, no, it's the real Moriarty. Actually, no, that was actually, the real Moriarty, but now we have a new Moriarty who's taken the place, but that second Moriarty who we thought was the replacement was actually the real Moriarty, but no, actually he's also hypnotized and there's this third guy and he's also a trans dominatrix or something. Yeah. yeah. And all, yeah and that, all, uh, Irene Adler is a, is a sexy dominatrix too, uh, yeah. you know, because, and you can just replace it all with, you know, an hour and a half of Stephen Moffat waggling his dick in the camera. And that's what I'm saying. <laughs> <laughs> I love I love the uh, 
both the subtle and not so subtle shots we've taken at that shitty series throughout this whole <laughs> series. <laughs> and as I, I repeatedly say, I've never seen it, so it might be really good. I don't know. I've 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 seen the first two seasons, and I'm very happy I stopped there. That, that's <laughs> you know, the the first episode was pretty good. It was promising. Actually, the second episode was pretty good. Um, and then it once once Moriarty comes, it just it's done. It's just done. Which anyway, kind of goes back to our uh, what we were talking about last episode, where Mar- Moriarty's basically bullshit, and you don't need him. Yeah, yeah. yeah. If you're going to do Moriarty, just do him like the Basil Rathbone films do, which is in the Basil Rathbone films, he's just like a Batman villain in the in the old '60s Batman TV series, which is every now and again, you know, the Joker would turn up, and you that's fine you know the, the joker goes off and does something for a while and you don't know where he is and then he turns up in an episode and then the you know, batman wins and then the joker fucks up for fucks off for a bit and then he turns up again that's that's fine and that's what the basil rathbone movies do they basically just have moriarty as this guy who turns up every now and again and holmes says oh it's moriarty and watson says what really oh no not moriarty and then they win and then he goes away again for a bit that's that's how you do it because you just treat him like the pulpy recurring villain that he essentially has to be uh, unless you're trying to do it faithfully and as we saw in the uh, the uh, final problem empty house one that doesn't really work no so apparently uh, although he's not seen this is the only reference to mycroft holmes in the entire uh, basil rathbone nigel bruce series mm. And they basically just say, oh, he's got a house you can stay at or whatever the fuck. <laughs> My brother Mycroft has a place we can stay or whatever. Like, what? Yeah, who, would, who would play Mycroft in these? Laird Krieger. Oh, yeah. I was thinking Sidney Greenstreet. Yeah, maybe, yeah. Uh, I'm, I'm just thinking like Laird Krieger physically. Like that guy could pull off Mycroft because Mycroft's supposed to be this lazy, overweight guy who just sits in, in the club and thinks on things and doesn't do anything, you know? Like, yeah. <laughs> so I don't know enough British actors from that period. I think like Fred McMurray, but I'm thinking hmm. that because of like double indemnity. Fred McMurray? <laughs> <laughs> I, no, I don't think so. Claude but, uh, Rains. I think Claude Rains had over he'd overshadow or threatened to over overshadow Rathbone, wouldn't he? It'd be too much to have them on. Very big, yeah. That yeah. would be. Yeah, you don't you don't need the uh, fucking Invisible Man going up against fucking. Well, actually, I'd love to see Sherlock Holmes versus the Invisible Man. That'd be an interesting uh, serial. I think. Wow, that that might actually be a mashup that hasn't been done yet. You never yeah. know. <laughs> one of us, one of us needs to write that. That needs to happen. Hollywood, call us. <laughs> Henry Daniel, who did play Moriarty in, in this, uh, he also played uh, William Eastern in a previous uh, one in this series, and who was also another enemy. And he also played an ally of Holmes, Anthony Lloyd, in Sherlock Holmes and the Voice of Terror. Hey. Uh, the voice, voice of Terror is brilliant because it's completely unhinged, outright wartime propaganda. It's It's <laughs> one of the... It's it's completely terrible, but it's great fun. Oh, I copied this from the trivia, and apparently I didn't read it all the way through. Uh, the Breen office in, uh, ordered two cuts from the original script. First, the victims were supposed to be young girls. That was ordered to be changed to young women. Uh, although Dr. Sinnell's bizarre doll fetish may be a leftover from the initial concept. So, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's creepy. Yeah. <laughs> okay, new Peter Lorre. Oh, Moriarty. as Moriarty? Yeah, totally. Or, or as the creepy doctor? Uh, that, that would no, no, I was, just, I, was going, I was just going with M. I was just, you know, I just suddenly had that 
mental image. Yeah, man, that would that would overtake this serial too if Peter Laurie was in, in here. That would just be no. Yeah. Um, uh, in addition, during the scene in the Mesmer Club, Watson was supposed to take off his pants, not just roll his pants. <laughs> like, that's whoa. Yeah, <laughs> that, that that gets a little too close to what we were talking about earlier with the Me Too shit. Yeah, and then and then in that moment, Holmes has the reaction that Watson has to the pretty girls. Actually, now I'm starting to get this, you know, this mental image of Watson as being performatively ultra horny, like in 1980s, like sex comedy, uh, blonde surfer guy, as a way of deflecting from the own suspicions of his own relationship with Holmes. Like, you know, <laughs> this yeah. needs to go into our invisible moment. We need to write this as if it's going to be played by Basil Rathbone and uh, Nigel Bruce, by the way. Yeah. And uh, in in uh, the hypnosis session, you know, the guy accidentally regresses Watson back into his deepest, most secret fantasies. And Watson starts in the middle of the Mesmer Club. Watson starts talking about how he, he wants to be uh, railed by Holmes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'd like to take Holmes behind the curtain. Yeah. Yeah. Give him uh, a three pipe problem. <laughs> <laughs> oh, shit. Okay, we're going to play a little bit of music and we're going to come back with uh, our second feature without a clue. You ungodly warlock. Without a clue from 1988. Just when you thought you knew everything about the world's greatest detective, along comes Without a Clue. It's about murder. Maria! Are you sure he's not trying to kill me? Of course not. He knows you're an idiot. Thank God. It's about kidnapping. Abducted? By whom? Abducted. <laughs> Mr. Holmes! Have courage, Mr. Holmes! <laughs> you don't know who you're dealing with, my friend. My name is John Holmes! This is a matter for professionals. Watson. It's about 
romance. Hello, Mr. Holmes. It's unsafe for you to sleep alone tonight. Would you like my autograph? <coughs> it's all over now, my pretty one. It's about the greatest case of mistaken identity in history. Excuse me, but you are Sherlock Holmes, aren't you? Well, that depends. But it's time now for the public to learn the truth. The truth? He was an actor. Unfortunately, he was also a gambler. There's a little matter of a gambling debt. A womanizer. Me! <laughs> Did it again. And a drunkard. He's been at it again. I never liked that woman. You idiot! What? Can't you? What did what, what I say? It's the flip side of Sherlock Holmes. <sighs> Have you no respect for people's privacy? <laughs> Michael Caine and Ben Kingsley are Sherlock Holmes and Dr. Watson as you've never seen them before. Something's afoot. Something wrong? Without a clue. Rated PG. Directed by uh, Thom Eberhardt. Interestingly enough, I saw a couple of his uh, credits here. He also went on to do Captain Ron, which is probably his most well-known movie. But he did two sort of genre favorites uh, from 84, Soul Survivor and Night of the Comet as well. So kind of surprised to see his name doing this stuff too. Like, I guess he just sort of moved on from sort of like genre sci-fi horror to uh, comedies and stuff. Rich. From the director of Captain Ron. That's yeah. not a that's not a that's not an introductory phrase you ever or introductory clause you ever want to have to use ultimately. <laughs> Written by Gary Murphy and Larry Strother, who uh this is their only uh movie credit. Uh, all their work Wow uh, that's that's mysterious. <laughs> Starring Michael Caine as Sherlock Holmes, uh, Reginald Kincaid, Ben Kingsley as Dr. John Watson, Jeffrey Jones as Inspector George Lestrade. Uh, Lizette Anthony as fake Leslie Giles, Paul Freeman as Professor James Moriarty, Pat Keene as Mrs. Hudson, Matthew Savage as Wiggins, Nigel Davenport as Lord Smithwick, Tim Killick as Sebastian Moran, Peter Cook as Norman Greenhow, uh, John Warner as Peter Giles, and Matthew Sim as the real Leslie Giles. We have a synopsis here. Sherlock Holmes is a dashing as ever, with, but with a little secret. Dr. Watson is the brains behind the operation. Watson scripts all of Holmes' solutions, having discovered that while people would believe in Holmes, no one was ready to accept Dr. Watson, crime doctor. When Reginald Kincaid, the actor he has hired to play Holmes, becomes insufferable, Watson fires him and tries to go on his own, but finds that he has done all too good of a job building Holmes up in the public's mind by uh, John Vogel. And yeah, that's a good synopsis, I'd say as far as just the, the premise and we can get into the story here, but yeah, Jack, what are your general thoughts on this one? Okay. Well, this is crap, um, <laughs> but I kind of like it. I have to confess it, it. You know what it feels like to me? It feels like the 90 minute pilot for a television series, Oh yeah, no, but yeah. with, you know, inexplicably famous actors in the lead roles. Like it, it feels, it feels exactly like that. It feels like it's the pilot for something that then went on to have, you know, two or three seasons in the in the late eighties. There was like, sorry to interrupt, but there was a kind of a fervor in different production studios and stuff trying to get like a Sherlock Holmes series off and running around this yeah. time. And so there were a couple like Sherlock Holmes TV movies, like there was the Christopher Lee 
ones. There, there was two of those around this time. Uh, and what's his face from uh, the Avengers is Dr. Watson. Patrick McNee. Knee was Watson, yeah, and uh, then there was like a TV movie. Like uh, there was a, one of one of them was like CBS a TV movie. Moriarty's descendant get, gets caught by Holmes, who was in like cryogenics for like a hundred years. Yeah, and, I remember that. Yeah. That was uh, Michael Pennington playing mm-hmm. Holmes, and he yeah. he teams up with Doctor Watson's descendant, who's a who's a woman. Yeah, and yeah. a woman doctor. I know. It was, I watched it. It's fucking terrible. It is terrible, but it's one of those things I have fond memories of from from you know from being a kid. It, it kind of feels to me like the Doctor Who TV movie. It Same sounds idea. that way. It's very much that era, yeah. yeah. But yeah, go on, Jack. <laughs> it's Sorry like Forever run. Night, but it's Sherlock Holmes. That's ultimately. <laughs> <you know? laughs> but yeah, this is what this is what this feels like. It's it's. I mean, there's obviously a budget here, and there's there's a good cast. You know, you got Paul Freeman and Michael Caine in his in that phase of his career where he was too old to be playing the hero, and too young to be the venerable mentor figure in a Christopher Nolan movie, which is what he does now. So he he did a series of these films where he tries to. I, I don't know what his career goals were, but he seems to be trying to reinvent himself as a sort of cuddly comedic. Uh, actor, you know, he does the Muppet Christmas Carol and Dirty Rotten Scoundrels. And his career goal was to get a paycheck. I mean, he famously yeah. said, "Jaws: The Revenge paid for his house or whatever." Yeah. So. <laughs> says, "Have you seen?" Uh, some fan asked him, "Have you seen Jaws: The Revenge? It's terrible." And he says, "Well, no, but I have seen the house I bought with the check, and it's phenomenal." So, yeah. You know. <laughs> Which is completely fair enough, you know. That's, yeah. If I got offered fuck you money to go be in Jaws eight or whatever, like, yeah, I would. Yeah, no, that's fine. Yes, I'll totally. Go yeah. Shit. yeah, it's fine. I mean, Michael Caine's a bit of a prick about it. You know, he puts all the money he makes offshore, so he doesn't pay tax, etc. But you know, yeah. there you go. So yeah, it's got a it's got a good cast. It's got Ben Kingsley, who's big in the eighties because he was in Gandhi, you know. And it's got Michael Caine, and it's got Paul Freeman as Moriarty, and Lisette Anthony, who was a fairly big deal at this time. So it's got some, you know, and it looks uh, Jeffrey Jones is in it inexplicably as as yeah, as there's some stuff in this now when you look back yeah yeah, Jeffrey Jones and his like pederasty yeah Yeah, I I, I, like you know he might I'm not even going to make the joke it's just yeah no we we can't we're just going to forget Jeffrey Jones exists in this film (laughs) I think like okay he's fine but but, you know there's no need to talk about it anymore after Amadeus, Jeffrey Jones is somebody who, you know, he's a he's a name, he's a face. You, you, so my point is that there's a good cast here, and that there's yeah. a good budget behind this it. This is only stuff. a couple of years after Ferris Bueller's Day Off, and he was like a, amazing in that, right? I mean, yeah. you know, he's he's a big he's a big star. I mean, this is a this is a big movie, right? Yeah, yeah, it, it, that's right. And yet, it does look and just feel kind of cheap all the way through. It does look like a TV. It does feel like a TV movie. It feels like a TV pilot, as I say. And it's kind of plotless. The plot is incredibly perfunctory. You know, the the point of the exercise is obviously to lay out the concept. And this is this is why it feels like a pilot. the The point of the exercise is to lay out the concept and have a very brief arc where they fall out and then they make friends again and then it's back to business as usual which is exactly why it feels like a pilot because it's yeah. like we're telling you the premise we're setting you up for the series to come so it, I, I really do suspect this started life as a, as a as a pitch for a tv show i don't know the concept is kind of obvious and they don't really do as much with it 
as they could have done with it. It's one of those things where the the concept is is so good and the the delivery is just eh, you know, it's not particularly like all the jokes are pretty predictable and by the numbers and you know, it's oh somebody's fallen over and somebody's hit their head on something and somebody's made a joke about how Sherlock Holmes is stupid and you just re- rinse and repeat for an hour and a half. You know? Yeah. But um you know I don't know the the cast are charming and the whole thing just feels like a like a fun run around and yeah and unless you're the sort of person that just can't switch your brain off and watch crap for an hour and a half if you and that, I respect that if 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 you're just one of those people that can't do that then that's fine this isn't for you but I'm quite capable of yeah it's it's a stupid comedy film about how Sherlock Holmes is an idiot and Watson is the clever guy starring Ben Kingsley and Michael Caine and it's only 90 minutes long and you can watch it without having to think about it so yeah that's fine with me for once in a while yeah yeah, uh, Daniel. I'm going to take you on a on a journey here. Oh boy, just a little bit. I had seen I, I had seen this before. I'd seen it once. I you know I went through a little bit of a watching like Sherlock Holmes movies randomly when you got discs from Netflix, and I would do the thing of like getting the disc from Netflix, and I would get home from work just early enough to like watch a movie and then run to the post office and put it back in the and so I could get like a movie like literally every day. Um, and it was pretty awesome. And I did that for about four months and watched a ton of stuff in that period. Anyway, so I'd seen this before, just uh, just FYI. I saw on a Twitter thread the other day, somebody talking about the Marvel films and saying that, you know, and, and kind of relating it to William Goldman's adage from Adventures in the Screen Trade, which is a book that I think uh, everybody listening to this knows that had a, had a big influence on me. I read it when I was like 18 or 19 years old. Uh, you know, I think there's a lot that we can still learn from uh, from that book, particularly if you're interested in kind of cinema of the kind of late 60s to early 80s, essentially. Goldman has the adage, like, nobody knows anything as a way of kind of talking about the films. Uh, in terms of like the way studios make films, they put a ton of money into projects that end up being completely stupid for like really obvious reasons in retrospect, right? And so like everybody's on a crapshoot and everybody's terrified, and that's explains so much of Hollywood at that time. Just understand that. And then this Twitter thread kind of goes into talking about like, and the thing with like modern franchise entertainment, the thing with like the Marvel movies and the Harry Potter movies, and the, is that that's not true anymore. Uh, marketing departments and film film studios have figured out how to make these now. They've just solved the problem of how do you make a billion dollars on a consistent basis? Well, you put this kind of elements in, like they, they've figured out the formula, and so they can just kind of churn this stuff out and make their money, and they don't have to do weird shit anymore and put any kind of money behind it. If they do it, it's only to kind of give it to a filmmaker to just make something so that that filmmaker will continue to work with them or as a cherry on top or whatever. And I think that explains sort of the modern film industry. I, I, I find that really compelling as sort of an, it's something I've been thinking about. The reason I say that is that, like, you look at a film like this... <laughs> And it's very clearly trying to go through the Sid Field formula picture. Sid Field wrote story and he wrote like he was kind of that screenwriting god for roughly 20, 25 years. I think now he's a little bit less, you know, we've just kind of moved past that idea, but he was like kind of that, like, we're going to build the three act structure. We're going to kind of do, we're going to have like, you know, beats here, here, and here. And if you watch this film, it's trying to force something that should be kind of a quirky little comedy 
with a sort of sort of interesting kind of side notes and sort of a sort of just just kind of a weird like nerd thing into this kind of like big budget formula like this is how we're going to make money out of this kind of concept i think the concept i mean jack says is i think you know i remember this for everything i remember about this is from the first like 30 minutes or so um mm. i remember the like oh you see but you do not observe and i see like <laughs> the like the dynamics between being kingsley and michael kane the sort of that that sort of commentary between them the, the the banter that they have michael kane is kind of the you know the womanizer like gambling kind of actor who's like obsessed with like that one time he was like mentioned and even you know the, this kind of vainglorious actor right i, I kind of love all that aspect all the like plot bullshit you're right it's, it's complete nonsense there's no reason it's here except you couldn't just write a 90 minute movie that was sort of you know uh, michael kane and bing kingsley kind of faffing about solving crimes as you know and kind of doing business with each other you've got to do like a story you've got to give it an arc you've got to give it some kind of like overarching narrative and ultimately all that stuff is completely forgettable i rewatched this movie yesterday and i've forgotten everything that happens past the first 45 minutes um <laughs> i have one note i have one note and it was uh literally based on the fact that they have video game barrels big 55 gallon <laughs> barrels that are literally marked solvent in big like black letters which uh, does not meet modern msds you know signage categorization maybe that passed muster in victorian england but like solvent is not exactly a uh, a descriptive term um and i just felt like there should be somebody with a machine gun blowing them up um you know uh, <laughs> so, yeah, so yeah would... like the, the film you know it's it's perfectly entertaining it's perfect it's very 80s and it's very it's very 80s in that like predictable like i watched a bunch of these on cable when i was a kid kind of way you know it yeah. feels very it just fits into that formula but it the, the problem is that it's hampered by that you know they haven't figured out how to do this in the kind of the entertaining way they haven't figured out how to kind of take the 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 real thing that you kind of give to mass audiences to make it work and kind of put kind of quirky stuff into it to kind of make it interesting and fun. And that's why I think a lot of these 80s films are getting remakes. I'd love to see a remake of this. Like, you sign me up for, like, a really well-made remake of this. I am down for that, you know, um, because I think there is, like, real potential here. But it just it fits into this 80s movie franchise bullshit. And it just it just fundamentally doesn't work as a narrative. So, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> this is, yeah, this movie's bullshit. Like, it's just, it's... It's not. It's not even ninety minutes. It's like a hundred and seven minutes of bullshit. Right. Oh yeah, no, no. It's well longer than you know. It's it's, it's it definitely overstays its welcome by at least twenty five minutes. This is the nineteen eighties. This is the decade of fucking ninety minute movies. Like that's the cut. Well, ninety minute comedies at that. Like yeah, I mean, we're so used to like you know like that like kind of you know it's ninety one minutes. It's funny. Come watch it. It's great. You know. Uh, that being said. I did laugh quite a bit in this. Like I, I enjoy the banter between Kane and um, Kingsley. I, I think they make a pretty good duo and it's like, yeah, you could, you could see where someone would like pitch a franchise with these two because they do have good chemistry and it, it might be good, you know, if, if it's the script was competent, but this is just them going through a series of shit. There's a lot of good lines, good performances, from everybody i think that's across the board pretty much true i enjoy seeing that even though a even a fake sherlock's holmes is a substance abuser and an asshole like he's he's just 
<laughs> he, he he doesn't he doesn't have the high class drugs like cocaine or anything. He just gets drunk all the time, but he's still a big major fucking asshole and a me too proponent as well. He's yeah, just yeah. he's he's trying to use his uh, oh, yeah. persona as Sherlock Holmes to uh, to me too uh, Lizette Anthony, which you know. Good taste, but uh, inappropriate way to do it, sir. He, um, he, he does. He does pinch the girl's bum in the in the pub, you know, which is you know, and, and, and then is, and then when she demands, like, oh, who did that? What? And then like, oh, I'm sorry. I, and then he does it again. So you but, know, well, he's oh. like, no, let me let me uh, use my powers of deduction to discover who uh, who uh, pinched your bottom, madam. And then he pinches her again. Yeah, oh, it was me. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, you're you're drunk, Michael Caine. Go home. Yeah, I, I do kind of like like there's a bit of a charm to some of the sort of slapsticky comedy in this, and there's a bit of a absurdist kind of stuff going on that feels like badly written Monty Python skits to a certain extent. Some of the stuff, you know, Monty Python without the wit and intelligence, it's just oh yeah, the the basest Monty Python doing slapstick kind of stuff in some of these sequences. Um, and it, it feels mostly inconsequential until you get to the cutoff point at about after an hour where all of a sudden a random dock worker gets knifed in the throat. And, and then I'm like, whoa, this kind of took a turn. Like, yeah, no, I get it. Lightweight comedy. And now all of a sudden Moriarty's got his vastly ruined Sebastian Moran character as just a thug who knifes people in the throat for him. <laughs> Again, that's the kind of tonal shift that we could expect in a film like sort of post Tarantino, Kevin Smith, Robert Rodriguez era, where we're going to mix like this kind of broad comedy with some edge to it with a a kind of a a darker, you know, some some of those elements with a little bit of action. Like, and again, it it just feels like, you know, that Hollywood just didn't know how to do this at this point. You know, it's so badly placed. It comes out of nowhere. We've got a full hour and it's just basically harmless, like comedy. And then all of a sudden this poor doc worker shows up the wrong point and and time Moriarty's like, well, that's it for him. Knife him in the throat. (laughs) <laughs> I feel like I th- I think this film would actually be considerably improved if its overall if its overall tone was actually more serious. Like mm. it, this suffers from that thing that you get a lot in comedy where everybody turns up thinking right we're doing a comedy. So you, obviously the writers they haven't thought about the tone beyond it's a comedy. So, you know, every every other thing that uh, the, the Holmes character says has to be stupid, you know, a malapropism or he fails to understand something simple and lots of people fall over things and make noises when they're trying to be quiet and people get hit on the head. And, you know, that, that's that's just what you do because it's a comedy. Well, no, that doesn't follow because not all comedies are like that. That's a particular type of comedy. You know, not all comedy is farce and physical comedy and not all comedy is is quips and it's it's very it veers well, back and forth between slapstick and sitcom and it's just like everything is comedic you know and Lestrade is obviously you know he's an overblown pompous version of Lestrade and you have the uh, the the bigwig guy so whatever it is and he's he's playing it very much in this comedy way and just everything is done as comedy Paul Freeman turns up as Moriarty and he's practically twirling a mustache etc because Everybody turns up thinking, right, we're doing a comedy. So we do those big comedy performances. And well, no, sometimes it works better if the if the sort of the basis of what you're doing is serious. You play it like it's it's happening in a realistic world. 
you know, yeah. and I feel like this film would be considerably improved if somebody just thought about the tone and said, "What well, this is a comedy, sure, but the comedy should arise from, you know, something other than people, you know, one of the characters is a total idiot and falls over a lot, etc. Well, in, I, I, have, in, I have two references here. One, Harold Zoid from Futurama. Why is there more moving going on in my movie? People need to be waving their arms in the background. Sorry, that's the, you know, based on. You've got to just do comedy, so you just put bits in the middle of other bits. The other is David Mamet, uh, who has his own Me Too problems, etc., etc., etc. Book on directing, where he talks about, uh, you know, here's how you make a movie, and everybody thinks, like, the way you direct is you sort of encapsulate the theme in every single shot, and, you know, like, kind of reinforce. And, like, the way you direct is actually, it's built on, like, how you edit shots together, and how you kind of build a narrative out of individual bits. And so the idea is you kind of figure it out, as a like kind of Eisensteinian process. And the, the big thing, the big like note that he gives is like the hammer doesn't have, the, the nail doesn't have to look like a house. The nail has to look like a nail. And this is a movie in which every nail looks like a house. Ultimately. Biggest problem here is, yeah. So Holmes is an idiot and Jack is right here. If it was treated seriously, because all the characters around him are idiots as well, except for Watson. Watson's just like this, nerd who no one believes oh watson couldn't possibly be a fucking brilliant detective that's another thing we need a we need a rationale for that why do people not take watson seriously and and why does everybody just find holmes incredibly impressive it's the the movie just kind of takes that for granted that when holmes and watson walk into the room everybody looks at holmes and goes oh wow he's amazing even when he's obviously just making it up as he goes along and watson tries (laughs) to talk to people and they just go who the fuck are you and there's no there's no rationale for why that happens it, yeah, it just I, I think there's a, because the script requir- requires it. I think there's a there's a you know everybody's read the back of the book kind of yeah. problem you going yeah. on. Mm-hmm. But also, I think you could again, if you were going to remake this again, Hollywood, give us a call. I think we could <laughs> we could make this. You know, we could make a hundred million dollars, well, and we Netflix could Netflix give us a call because yeah. this is a series. Yeah, I know. Mm. well, the thing where I'm landing, you know, <laughs> you know, Blumhouse, give us five million dollars, we could make <laughs> this fucking film. No, I was I was asking high so that they would then give us five million dollars. Oh, we sorry, cheer, sorry. You know? like that's the you know you fucked up my whole plan. But uh... sorry, I'm like I'm like yeah, Ray um, ruining everything for Egon and <laughs> and Peter at the with the estate agent in the old fire station. Wait a See, so that's how you write a comedy in the '80s, by the way. Yeah, yeah. yeah. This is post Ghostbusters, so you know, mm. no, no, it's a thing. But yeah, everyone's like equally stupid as Holmes around him, and Holmes he fucking exposes himself as a fraud yeah. constantly. There's no well, way a rational person would not go, wait a second, this guy's a fucking moron. Like yeah. I think there's even... a narrative about the fact that the short stories have come to like kind of take yeah. over the reality of Holmes, and so they're looking at Holmes not because well, what they're seeing is that impressive. I also love the bit where, like, you know, they look at Holmes and then he just kind of looks at Watson. And he goes, "Watson, note that down." Yeah. And then uh, there's a moment in Woman in Green, which I watched after without a clue, where Holmes like nods to Watson and goes, "Like Watson, note that down." And I was just <laughs> kind of in that. I was in that kind of headspace where suddenly we're looking at you know the version of a Woman in Green, which is based 
made based on a story, a hypothetical story, which doesn't exist, that Watson wrote for Holmes. And so we're suddenly like, there are many levels of meta narrative that were going on in my head in that moment. <laughs> y- you know, you could totally see that like the whole thing is they've bought into the myth and he's just, and he's actually is a good actor. He comes in, he kind of does the thing. And ultimately like, it's not that hard to impress people. If you have two bits, like there's a moment where, you know, the, the crime doctor, which is a terrible branding as well, you know, which yeah. is also just kind of part of the problem, right? Um, the crime yeah. doctor, you know, he kind of comes in and he's like, I can tell you everything I need to know about you. I'm going to impress you and make you like convince and convince you that I'm the one you that I can solve your problem. And then he gives them, you know, like four like facts and they just kind of, this is twaddle. This is yeah, your, your nonsense. And then he fun. gives the exact same bits to Michael Caine when they're kind of in the back room. And Michael Caine comes down and goes, I can tell you recently been to India. And it's like, brilliant, brilliant. And so there is this sort of like thing in which the celebrity itself, like the narrative itself. Yeah. Feeds well, the into film, that. That's but, potentially but the, really good stuff. The film really needs to bring that out. Right. Right. Mm-hmm. The film doesn't do that. The film, the film, kind of gives us that but again that's just kind of part of the you know like it gives us that joke it gives us that good moment it doesn't do anything thematically with it and that's again they haven't figured out how to do this yet yeah because yeah. no they, they think we're writing a comedy so we just got to have a gag every every three lines and you <clears throat> right. just chuck chuck everything you know, every gag you can come up with at the wall and of course what you end up with when you do that is you end up with loads of things and this movie suffers terribly from this things that aren't actually jokes but are just joke shaped yeah, I, yeah, yeah. there's loads of them in this that you know, and it's it's painful at times. But yeah, if they could, if they actually gave it a bit more thought, like the idea that people find this guy impressive and plausible just because he's incredibly good looking and charismatic and a good actor, and because they've been taken in by the version of this guy that they've read in the story, so they see what they expect to see, and yeah. there's the guy in the background who's much more actually intelligent, but people don't perceive it. And maybe it's because he's actually not an impressive looking guy. He could look a bit more like the Nigel Bruce version of, version of Watson. He could be an older guy. He could be a bit fat. He could be, you could do it anyway. Watson could be portrayed as nerdy and shy, but to to do that, you kind of need to recast. And I get the yes. feeling this only, this only got made because it was Michael Caine and, and Ben Kingsley. Yeah. Whereas really, if, if you could, I mean, I haven't got anything against either of them. They're fun in the roles. But if you could get rid of them and put people, different people in the roles that, that, that would make more sense, you could make the script make a lot more sense that way. Oh, well, who would we recast in 1987? Timothy Dalton as, as, as Holmes. Yeah, I could see yeah. that. So you got the uh, beautiful actor. And then as Watson, oh. Sylvester McCoy. <laughs> yeah no that's that works that works i like that pairing actually that's that's really good and if we're gonna oh. do it in 2019 how better to do it than uh simon Pegg and um what's his uh nick frost, nick frost or, yeah yeah get edgar or, wright on this edgar wright uh, yeah we've got we a movie it. idea for you i know you're a fan of this podcast <laughs> i know yeah Absolutely. Yeah. I was also I was also thinking um we won't fuck you over like Marvel did with Ant-Man. <laughs> yeah. We wouldn't do that to you, brother. No, we wouldn't do that. I was also Stop thinking... Holmes being a total idiot as well. That that, that it's too much. Like mm-hmm. Yeah, I know. It's just, it's way he, over the top. Yeah. He just doesn't have to a, be a total idiot. He could just, just make be him an actor. Yeah, he he could just be an actor and he could be, you know, you could play into some actor stereotypes about them being precious and pompous and stuff like that without him just being this kind of complete and utter fool and i i think yeah if you 
Yeah. If you did that, and then you made Moriarty like a deadly serious threat rather than a moustache twirling villain, the humour would arise from the idea, you know, and you change it maybe so that Moriarty hasn't figured it out because i don't under why did they do that why did they make it that moriarty understands what's going on you just instantly blow any sort of tension or drama in the holmes watson moriarty triangle there that's, if moriarty knows it's watson that's so the thing you could have a situation where moriarty is taken in he actually thinks holmes is everything that watson writes him to be so you have a situation with a serious moriarty who is nonetheless under that impression where this deadly serious gangster criminal psychopath guy is going after this guy who he thinks is his intellectual equal with all guns blazing and the guy is just this poor actor you know he's not an idiot but he's just an actor so he yeah there's more comedic potential there i think than than i I was actually super disappointed by this rewatch because i had seen it as a kid and i had remembered it as being that scenario where moriarty thought holmes was holmes yeah well one of the best bits of the film is when quote unquote holmes discovers that you know it's moriarty this time and he completely freaks uh, freaks out yeah no that's a great moment professor moriarty the guy who tried to kill me yeah, <laughs> that homicidal maniac. He stops the fucking train to complain yeah. about it, which is beautiful. I just love that they they're off on the, in like the field by the track, and they're just like yelling at each other. It's great. Yeah, no, <laughs> that's like that was another bit that I remembered after I saw. Like, oh right, that's a great little moment. Um, yeah, no. and then it feels like like all these outbursts because the public is constantly seeing these weird outbursts where Holmes is not being Holmes. It feels like, oh yeah, that's where I should probably write in. He's got a drug problem or something. Like he's, he's... no, no, it totally justifies the drug yeah. problem, right? You know, it's like, oh yeah, he was just on cocaine when you saw that. You know, yeah. out of his <laughs> mind. Yeah, yeah, no. Uh, I, I will, I will say, um, kind of funny when you look back at this, uh, how this movie didn't foresee the fact that crime doctors, quote unquote, would be the most popular fucking thing on TV in the next 15 years after this. <laughs> like with CSI and all that shit. No, like, no, no, no. Like, yeah, yeah no. It, you know, it's, it's it's just a branding issue more than anything else because crime doctor is traditionally, oh, that means that's a doctor who is in, in the employee of the mafia. You know, that's the crime doctor. He, he yeah. stitches up people who get shot in the streets and shit. Right? Although I could see a CBS show called like Crime Doctor starring like kind of bland, blonde guy in his mid-30s that uh, wine moms <laughs> want to fuck. Um, <laughs> well, just get, and his get, team of assistants. Yeah. God, oh, the CBS, call me. Uh, <laughs> we got a new show for you. Yeah. <laughs> well, you, you're basically just talking about a, a, a sexy younger reboot of Diagnosis Murder. So Right. Which, uh, or uh, which is their entire fucking lineup, you know? Like, please, God, can you imagine if we actually did get a call from CBS and I spend the next fifteen years writing a terrible, you know, even if you're writing, even if you're writing scripts and you're getting rejected, it's not a bad job. You still get paid for those scripts. So, (laughs) um, a podcast I've been listening to lately, best movies never made or something like that. It's called. Where they're just talking about, they're just talking with people like scriptwriters and stuff like that who have pitched ideas for movies that were never made. Uh-huh. It's like, yeah, and they're, you know, they're talking about how, you know, frustrating stuff it is. And it is a frustrating process. But at the same time, it's like a lot of these scripts they're writing, they're getting paid for them, even if, even though they get like shelved by the studios and stuff and never there are made. people who make careers who will spend mm-hmm. like, you know, you got to be in the system. Like you've got to kind of be in the radar and everything. But there are people who will literally write like three episodes of a television show and then go off and make and write spec scripts and get like paid to write them. 
yep. and make a career doing that and then let never have anything actually get made. Yeah. yeah. That in fact in, in some ways that's safer because you know if you get something made and it bombs or the industry decides in its collective wisdom that it's that it's bad you then never work again. But if none of your scripts ever get made then you're fine. You just keep on writing scripts and getting paid for them and you're never in any danger. Yeah, you're that guy who got a buzz behind it because you almost had your script for the sequel to the thing made or something like that, you know, like yeah. Um the guy the guy who wrote the Doctor Strange movie and is writing the sequel to the Doctor to I mean, you know, huge, huge movie was like a guy writing for Ain't It Cool News in like nineteen ninety nine. Isn't it uh Drew Masterworm. Struzen or Masso no Masterworm oh. was his uh Yeah, uh, Mas- yeah. Drew Struzan Illustrator. Yeah. What the fuck am I even thinking? Yeah, no, um, it's not that. It's something yeah, I can't uh, believe I can't remember right now. But, but no, it's the yeah. same guy. It's the same guy. Well, you know. I can't believe I I can't remember someone from Ain't It Cool News. <laughs> I can't believe you don't have like perfect knowledge of Ain't It Cool News circa 1999, Lee. Okay, what are you doing on this podcast? Fuck that website. Well, um, fuck, yeah, but uh, you know there was you know you know who I remember from Ain't It Cool News. I remember from the comments there was this prolific uh, commenter called uh, Danny Glover's Dick Blood. <laughs> <laughs> so much of my own like history with so much of my own history with film there was there was a guy who at the time called himself moriarty who was like the yeah. guy that i uh like i i learned a lot reading that guy like and he was a guy who moved to hollywood in 1990 and tried to make it as a screenwriter and now he's freelancing and doing stuff i mean you know like whatever again <laughs> moved to la Suffer in the system for your life. Never make anything interesting. Yeah. Uh, I will say one more thing I, I did really get a kick out of in this film is the uh, Shakespeare-themed sort of hotel they go to <laughs> when they take a travel there. And all these rooms, like I've read Shakespeare, all these rooms sound terrible. I do not want to stay in the King Lear room. I do not want to stay in the Hamlet room. Like these are not happy rooms. These yeah, like. No. Yeah. <laughs> Always makes me laugh when posh people in Britain give their daughters names like Cordelia. You know, you, you know what happened to her, right? <laughs> yeah, I don't even know if it was a joke. It, it wasn't a joke, probably. No, no one had any thought about it when they were writing. It's like, oh, Shakespeare themed hotel. That's fine. It's the funniest joke in the movie. It was completely unintentional. Yeah, yeah. I got a big kick out of it. I was like, oh my god, the King Lear room. You you really want to fucking stay there? I don't know. <laughs> I'm gonna be in that room with my three daughters. Yeah. Ew. yeah. <laughs> well, no, the, the King Lear room would just be open to the air. So, you know, you're in there and the storm comes and you get drenched. And then this jester shows up and calls you Nuncle. That's right. Yeah. There's yeah. a shack in the corner and you have to hide in there from the lashing rain. And yeah. <laughs> I love that our discussion about Without a Clue has in no way reviewed Without a Clue. I, I think that's something you only get that They Must Be Destroyed. There's hardly any substance to this movie. We had to create it out of thin air, yeah. basically. I was really looking forward to talking about this because I had nothing to say about the movie itself. Yeah. So, um, you know. it, it's actually, I guess also one more thing I'll say, it's fun that Miss Hudson gets to be a bit of a crime fighter in this briefly. Oh, oh yeah, that, that's something I like about this. There's kind of this little gang. There's uh, Watson and Mrs. Hudson and uh, Wiggins of the Baker Street Irregulars mm-hmm. sort of yeah, tag, yeah, yeah. all tagging along together. That's potentially again, it feels like the pilot for a TV series. Yeah, there's your there's your extended um, you know gang in the cast. I yeah, love the Irregulars. Your Scoopy gang. Watches. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Bits, yeah, yeah. There's your Scoopy gang. Uh, 
Josh Whedon, you hack. You 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 fuck. You saw this and you you knew, you knew what to do. Um, so uh, ripping ripping off things and making them better, like uh, as as we know, that's Hollywood in the nineties. Yeah. yeah. One trivia piece from this: Danny DeVito and Sean Connery had been toted as to possibly portray Doctor Watson, uh, according to the Los Angeles Times from nineteen eighty eight. Danny uh, DeVito would have worked better than Ben Kingsley. Danny yeah, DeVito would have been amazing. Yeah. yeah. The, sort of this little fat guy. I mean, I'm yeah. not being personal about him, you know, but that that would make more sense in terms of the way people treat Watson in the story. Danny DeVito is a Bernie supporter today, and I am not talking about electoral politics until after <laughs> November 2020. Um, <laughs> I learned my lesson from 2016. You just don't talk about electoral politics on, on social media. It's like Fight um, Club. Yeah, no. Um, you know, but but... <laughs> Dan DeVito is a Bernie supporter today and uh, has had some good tweets. And so I'm, I'm down Danny DeVito, you and me, let's go hang out. Like we're good. Also like, yeah, no, he would, he would work perfectly in this. Can only imagine what accent he would have done in 1987. Um, <laughs> well, it couldn't be any worse than Robert Duvall's. <laughs> I would like to think they would just like rewrite it as like he's an American expat or something. You know, there's no way to expect Danny DeVito to come in. And do. He, he he wouldn't even do an accent. He'd just be he sure would not. be Kevin Costner. Yeah, <laughs> Kevin yeah. Costner and uh, uh, Prince of Thieves. But, uh, <laughs> I'm completely fine with that, to be honest, because you know nobody sounds like people sounded. In, yeah. in that period of time. So, yeah, who cares? In fact, yeah. Americans today probably sound more like people in Britain sounded back then. If you, I mean, I've looked into this a little bit because I, you know, I'm a bit of a Shakespeare buff, as you know. If you look at the way the plays are, are written, they're written, the, the way they're written tells you a great deal about how people pronounced words back then. And the, you know, when the plays were originally put on, I mean, this is a bit after Robin Hood, obviously, but in the 1500s and 1600s, the voices of the people on the stage in the Globe Theatre in London, 1599 or whatever, they would have sounded probably a lot more similar to a modern American accent than to, you know, a received English British accent today. A, a lot of the old style pronunciation that got, that disappeared in this country ended up getting transmitted to America. So, you know, who the hell can say that uh, Robin Hood wouldn't have sounded like he was from California? <laughs> and was a really bad actor at the time. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, box office for this. Uh, don't have a budget. And anyone want to, like, take a guess at what the budget would have been for this in 1988? It's really hard to tell, isn't it? Because, as yeah. I say, it's it looks, it's got, you know, it's got nice sets and good shot location filming and it's got a good cast and yet there is kind of this aura of cheapness about it want to throw like i i would i would suspect five to six million maybe yeah something like that yeah uh box office dollars i mean you know you i mean yeah no yeah yeah and box office was 8.5 so and I think it got some good reviews. I think it was a kind of a mild success, maybe. Uh, I mean, it, it feels very much like that kind of middling, like, like, and again, just kind of looking at Hollywood in that era, you know, you make 20 films a year, right, as a studio. Yep. Four of them are bombs. Four of them are, like, huge earth successes. Like, they make, like, a lot of money. And then the rest are just kind of middling, like, they basically make their money back, plus maybe a Video. Extra. 
you know. And then video was like kind of a not new, but it was certainly not what kind of DV and streaming is today. But like, yeah, I mean, you know, it's 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 the sort of thing. Did this? I don't know. Sorry, I, I'm not trying to extend this episode, but Lee, did this play for you on like uh, basic cable and stuff? Yeah, um, like like I said, I I did see this before as a kid. Like this was on TV a lot. Okay, it wasn't here. It wasn't in the United, States, or at least in my in my market. I didn't like. It wasn't one that I kind of grew up with. But there mm-hmm. were a ton of these movies that basically got sold cheap to TBS, where like Ted Turner just bought the rights and just played it uh, three times a week for twenty years. Right. <laughs> you know? like, I'm, I'm um, betting this probably did pretty well for video rentals. You know, this is yeah. the sort of thing that would have sat in the corner in the video rental place for years and years and years and would have been rented out fairly frequently by, you know, dads who have their kids for the weekend yeah. and need to give them something to watch for a, an hour and a half, you know, no, I mean, or people Vin, that Vin, are just drunk and they need well, something to put on the television. And again, before Pixar figured out the family movie formula before that, you know, kind of paradigm existed, you know, you need something that is, I can give this to my kids and it's entertaining and goofy and Michael Caine sits and makes faces in it and my six-year-old will laugh at that, but also doesn't drive a spike into my eyeball. Yeah. <laughs> um, I can also snigger at the jokes about, uh, you know, Michael Caine wanting to fuck Lisette Anthony. Yeah. And the, the the inexplicable stuff at the end about the, the man in drag. What the, I don't, oh, what the I, fuck is I, that about? That kind I, of... I honestly, I will admit that my brain kind of had drifted off of this movie by that point when I watched See, it. That's, that's and I it... came back in and went, I don't know what's going on here. <laughs> I refuse to find out. That's why this I will make me it. hate this movie. This will make me hate this movie. Because Whatever's happening here. <laughs> that's why I I'm going to get canceled wanna... for this. That's, that's, Just that's... talking about this movie. That's why I didn't want to go too deep into that because Jeffrey Jones gets paired up as a romantic interest unknowingly with the cross-dressing quote-unquote daughter. And it's just like, I had this joke in the back of my mind, I'm not even going to say it. It's like, no, I'm not, I'm not even going to do it. Yeah, it's just, no. it's bad. It's, it's 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 a relic of a, of a previous time. And, yeah. it, you know, when just you know bloke in a dress was a joke just by itself you know look that's that's what the film says it says oh we need another joke here so bloke in a dress there you go that'll do Mm -hmm. that's funny isn't it you know yeah (sighs) yeah it's uh it's an artifact that's for sure uh lestrade fancies her but she's got a dick hilarious yeah uh yeah uh I, I keep no wanting, reason I, at all. I, I keep wanting to say it, but I'm not going to say it. Completely unforced error. You know, I'm not going to make the fucking joke. I don't care. <laughs> I usually don't censor myself, but I, I'm going to it this time because it's just it's it's low hanging fruit. Um, low hanging fruit. That's not even the joke. Uh, yeah, no, no, I'm, yeah, no, no. I'm. That's not even. Yeah. You, yeah. You're not even making a joke, Daniel. You're just gesturing in the in the general I'm direction gestur- of a joke. I'm gesturing at the fact Shape that you shouldn't joke. make that joke. Yeah, that's yeah. what I'm doing. Yeah. No, I right think your now. instinct to your instinct to self censor is probably very soundly. Yeah. MGM DVD from 2004 and Olive Films Blu-ray from 2015. If you want to pick this up, and uh, it's probably on Rare Lust as well. I imagine this one is. If... It isn't. Um, I actually oh, bought the DVD for this because. Oh, Jesus. Jesus Christ. 
Wow. I, it was like it was it was like twelve dollars. I'm not oh, sure. Okay. Like you know, like it, it was not worth the twelve dollars, but it was worth the experience of enjoying it twenty years ago or ten years ago. I was like, yeah, sure, fine. It's got Michael Caine in it. Like I well, I'll I appreciate your sacrifice. Yeah. No, I, I I put five minutes into trying to find it online and then just bought the DVD, which I kind of want. The, that's kind of how my sourcing movies for this goes at this point. Like if I can't find it in five minutes. It's usually worth just buying it. Um, if you desperately want to see this, you can put Locker it. Just saying. Yeah. Or I watched it for my part. I watched it on YouTube. Oh, um, did you? It, it's yeah. You know, it's got a. It's got an annoying sort of animated border around it. You know. Yeah. Is, oh, yeah but yeah. Um, the the film itself was already so annoying that I didn't find <laughs> the the border around it to be particularly extra annoying. So. <laughs> yeah, I didn't I didn't I didn't see the YouTube version. I probably would have just gone with it. Actually, no, if I saw like that version, I probably would have just bought it anyway. It's it's one of those things like Yeah. I don't know. I just feel like, yeah, sure, I'll I'll give it's fine. Like uh I'll put it on when somebody will be over and be like, Yeah, I know it'll be you know, we'll put on a goofy, you know, Michael Caine movie from nineteen eighty seven. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right, all right. So uh Jack, tell people where they can find you on the interwebs. Okay, well, uh, you can find me at my Twitter, which is at underscore Jack underscore Graham underscore. You will find links and to and news about everything I do on there, to my blog, Shaboon Graffiti, which is part of Eredator Press, and the various podcasts that I am, used to be, and occasionally still am, are, whatever, forgotten how to talk, involved in, including <laughs> the regular one, I Don't Speak German, that I do with your very own Daniel Harper, who's uh, going to speak next, I expect. Yeah, Daniel, start talking. I don't speak German. It's a podcast about terrible people and the terrible things they say. And the specific kinds of terrible people are fucking Nazis. And I don't Nazis. mean that in a sort of, like, vaguely, like, oh, bad people, Ben Shapiro sins. I mean that in the sense of, like, actual genocidal people who threatened to burn my house down. Yeah. Like, that's that's the level of people we're talking about. So, uh, if you're interested in listening to a podcast which treats these people humanely... Um, but humorously, uh, because they are both uh, there, there are people and terrible people who believe terrible things, uh, and also complete uh, dipshits. Uh, go listen to that podcast. And I, I, I do this kind of version of this uh, plug on this podcast because everyone listening to this has heard this like a hundred times, and I try to amuse you people. And so I'd like to know if this is actually amusing to people um, at some point. Like, I'd love to hear people say well, what your favorite me plugging I Don't Speak German is over the last year. So if somebody would do that, it would be great. Anyway, um, you can go check that out. I don't speak German.lipson.com. Otherwise, you can find me on Twitter at Daniel Lee Harper. Um, I have a Patreon. Go give me some money if you feel like it. Otherwise, um, yeah, here. That's basically it. I feel like we've already done the I'm the one who actually researches Nazis and lets Daniel take the credit joke at least twice already, so I won't do it yeah. now. Yeah. Plus, uh, plus, <laughs> plus, you don't want them to threaten to burn your house down. It's not fair. Yeah, well, this uh, is it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That's, the, that's why I let you take the credit, so that you can also take the risk. So, yeah, I'm not going <laughs> to tell people. I'm just a really good actor. <laughs> yeah. Who took that on. And episode. also a drunken, idiotic lecture as well. Yeah. <laughs> well, that that part, um, you know, uh, that is true. slightly yeah. on the nose. Yeah, yeah. Uh, if you want to, you know, listen to more of this podcast, where they're generally the people on it are pretty good. They're not terrible people. You can go to tmbdos.podbean.com. You can find our Apple Podcasts, YouTube, and Facebook uh, links. Facebook group. 
also full of people who are not terrible. Nice little um, small, but uh, very uh, cool community we have going on there. So if you want to join up to that and find out what's coming up on the podcast, that's the best, best place to do it. And that's where you can recommend films. Be like Jeff Williams, who is getting a whole fucking month next month of wow. uh, film recommendations that we're going to be covering. So, uh, you know, if you're prolific in doing that some of your recommendations are going to show up on this podcast. That's all there is to it. But until then, we're going to be uh, finishing off our Sherlock Holmes series uh, next time in the next episode with the two Guy Ritchie, with Robert Iron Downey Man Jr. 1 and 3. Iron Man 1 and 3. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, that's going to be a lot of fun. So um, until then, uh, thank you, gentlemen, for joining me once again. And uh, thank you all for listening. And we will see you next episode. Goodbye. You have been listening to They Must Be Destroyed on Sight. For other episodes, our links to Apple Podcasts, YouTube, and our Facebook group, as well as links to podcasts and websites of similar interest, please visit us at tmbdos.podbean.com. Thank you. Drive through. <laughs>